going to read from St. Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. We read chapter 8. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom we are all things, for whom, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be threatened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. This is the word of God for the people of God. Please be seated. After having picked this passage of Scripture to preach on earlier, I had begun to pull it out and read about it and read from other places about it, and I was kind of excited about talking about stumbling blocks. I thought it was a pretty straightforward sermon. Then I began to study some, and I began to have a different opinion. I began to have a different opinion because one of the first lines in one of the commentaries that I read said simply this in an introduction, you may have never heard a sermon from this passage of Scripture before in church. And I first kind of chuckled and thought, oh, never? And then I thought, have I ever preached on this passage of Scripture? Have I ever opened this part of the Scripture so that the people of God could contemplate together? And I went, I don't believe that I have. Not indirectly related to this passage of Scripture. Now, if you've ever heard a sermon on this passage of Scripture, I want you to raise your hand. Just raise it. There's one, two, four, six, five. Not too many. Not too many. I guess that author was kind of right. And after I got through studying and tried to figure out what I was going to say, I understand one of the reasons that this passage of Scripture is not preached about a lot because... This is a passage of Scripture that messes with us. And it messes with us in a way that we're not entirely comfortable. And it leaves some things open-ended that we really want closed. 
It leaves some questions in our minds that can cause us to struggle a little bit with this passage of Scripture and its broader implications. And as I began to think about that, I thought, you know, maybe I should choose another passage. There's a lot of passages to choose from, right? I mean, we're only here 52 weeks out of the year. Why do this on one Sunday? And I thought, no, no, I've already chosen this. I'm just going to be hard-headed about it. So here we go. Why could be concerned about this so much? Well, let's just be sure we got the story clear. Back in those days, especially in the Corinth, Corinth, meat was sacrificed to idols or for idols in particular ways. They were used for all kinds of sacrifices, and they were given to the gods, so to speak, when they were butchered and made ready for eating. So therefore, many of the people who ate meat were used to eating it in memory or or some kind of acceptance of the idol that the meat had been killed for. Now, there's also another reality in that day and time that since all meat was done that way, you didn't know if the meat you got to take home to your family had been offered to an idol or not, although you probably figured it was because most of the meat in that day was done that way. So therefore, if you were a Christian and you were concerned about not paying any attention or giving any credit to an idol, you wouldn't want to eat that meat, especially if it didn't bless to an idol. But as time went on and learning became apparent, this became an argument, a disagreement within the body of the church there in Corinth. And so that's why when Paul's writing this letter about their troubles, things that divide them, this is one of those things that has separated the congregation because some thought it was not right to eat any meat sacrificed to an idol, while others who had a broader knowledge of the subject realized that there was only one true God. And just because somebody says this meat is offered to a God, it doesn't really mean anything to me because that God's not real. That was Paul's reasoning. So he kind of sided with the knowledge and understanding of that part of the church who understood that they would not be condemned if they ate meat that had been offered to some idol that didn't really exist anyway. But the problem was some of their brothers and sisters did not have all of that knowledge, did not understand the scriptures in that way, and so therefore it was sinful to them to eat that meat. Now you get a a clash of what is sin and what is not sin. You have a disagreement, and Paul rises and takes this opportunity to say some things that are very important to the church today and have always been very important to the church. And that is that we must be very careful how we live, of course. So in this particular situation, we don't have to worry too much because, after all, meat's not sacrificed in that way today, and we don't really concern ourselves with false idols too much in our country or our land. But that does not mean that the principle that lies behind these words are not important for us today. Because he said, if you the stronger brothers eat the meat and your weaker brothers, as he called them there, stronger and weaker, his words, not mine, let's just say those with more knowledge and those with less, disagree on this topic, then you who have more knowledge can cause your brothers and sisters to stumble. Because for them, to eat that meat would be sin. Because many of them had been wound up in paganism and idol worship so long that anything that had anything to do with idols, they wanted to stay way away from. Let's compare it to something in our day. Let's suppose that you had been hooked on gambling all your life. You'd lost your family. You couldn't feed them. You couldn't take care of them because you had become addicted to gambling. And then you found Christ in a revival. And you put away anything and everything that looked like gambling. 
It was very important to you to stay away from that. You knew it was something that could tempt you. And then you went to play golf one day with a group of guys from the church. They got on the first tee, and they divided into two teams. And they said, whoever loses buys lunch when we're through. They started early. And the one guy who's new in the faith looked at the other three as if they had three heads. Uh, Guys, I do not gamble anymore, period. It's of the devil. It destroyed my family. It destroyed my life, and I don't gamble in any way. And one of the other men decided to explain to him that this wasn't really gambling. This was contest. (laughs) It's like playing the stock market. Don't want to leave anybody out after all. And then you, you would think, well, he explains it a little bit. And the guy looked at me and said, I understand that to you this doesn't seem like a bad thing. But to me, any form of gambling is addicted to me. And one of the other men wisely said, okay, forget it. We're going to play for fun. We're just going to play against each other. There will be nothing exchanged. No lunch bought at the end. And then we don't play the around the golf, had lunch, and all was fine. Imagine what would have happened had they insisted on doing what they usually did before they had this new partner. They would have become a stumbling block for that person, especially if that person joined in just for the sake of joining in. You see, this question has tentacles that go all across many different cultures and is important to us today, and we need to think about them because we do things in our lives at different times that have consequences for other Christians who believe, understand, have knowledge of of the Bible and faith in different ways than we do. It's important for us to, in the areas that are really important, to ask questions, to be sure that the people we're with, we don't become a stumbling block for them. That's one of the things that's often used about drinking in Scripture. If nothing else, it's always a stumbling block to those who are addicted to alcohol. I think it's one of the reasons why the United Methodist Church does not serve wine at communion. It's in deference to those who are alcoholics. And for them to come and take one sip of wine could put them back on a trail that they could not get off of. So therefore, we use grape juice, a product of the vine, but not fermented. You ever wondered why we do that? That's one of the reasons. Now, when you think about this and these consequences, you might ask yourself, okay, so there's not that. Then what else does it really apply to in our lives? And this message today is not, I don't consider this preaching. I'm going to try and not get to the point where I'm really preaching. I'm really wanting to talk to you about this text so that you might contemplate the implications of this text for your life as an individual follower of Christ and for your life as a body of Christ. Because we don't sin just individually, do we? Sometimes we commit sin as a corporate body, as a church. Sometimes we believe things as a church that divide us from other believers. You know why we have denominations? Oftentimes I'm asked by children and youth, why are there so many denominations? And I always say something like, well, that makes it easy for us to get along. Because if we all try to get along together in one church, can you imagine how little church would actually happen? I mean, we would be arguing about everything under the sun because of one set of Christians would believe this and one set of Christians would say that's sin, and we'd go on and on and on. Indeed, I do believe that God intended us for us to divide forth. We could meet with people that we were similar enough to that we could get along together about most of the central things of the faith. 
Then there's this odd denomination called United Methodist Church. You know, we are a denomination that doesn't have a long list of things you have to believe when you join, but rather a broad-based understanding that if you believe Jesus Christ was the Son of God, and if you have faith in his name to save you, and if you seek to follow him all your life, then you're a Christian. And everything else is secondary unto that. So we have some people on the far left, as they say, and some people on the far right, and a lot of people scattered around in the different places in the middle. We don't all believe the same things, and yet we remain united. Now, here's what's going to be weird. This might be one of the few times I get to say this. I don't know. That makes us Methodists more biblical, according to 1 Corinthians 8, than a lot of other denominations. (laughs) We're agreeing to get along, even though we don't agree about a lot of things. That makes us unique. And sometimes, at different times in the church's history, there become times when we strive to stop that and we try to make declarations about things that may not be nearly as mandatory as we think. In fact, they may be open to a lot of different interpretations of Scripture. Today in Confirmation, I was teaching the children who are our next youth class. They'll no longer be children. When they graduate and are confirmed, they'll be youth. I was teaching them about this book, the Bible. They're ready to be done, but not yet. They've got 12 more weeks. So this book is the book that we believe in in the church. It's like many, many, many Christians believe. Not all Christians, because there is something called the Roman Catholic Bible. And it's a little different from this book. It's got books we don't read, not as Scripture. It's a difference to them. And so, therefore, you've got the Roman Catholic Christians and you've got the Protestant Christians, and we don't even use the same book, but we all call ourselves Christians. A little different, right? Which one's right? Well, that's clear. We all know that. (laughs) I mean, after all, we've been around now, what, 600 years or so? Five, 600 years? Catholic Church? Oh, only 2,100 years or so. Oh, yeah, that's right there, the church that was the only church Jesus had on earth, physically visible and organized for over 1,500 years, except it had one split along the way, and then it became the Orthodox Church in the East and the Roman Catholic Church in the West, and then came the Protestant Reformation, and boy, did we start growing churches in a hurry, Right? Once we got out from underneath that, that authoritarian one church concept, and it was an important concept for us to get out of and for them to remain. But we don't agree about that in the same way. It doesn't mean when either one of us are not Christian. It just means that some of our doctrines are different. Some of the things we hold on to are different. It doesn't mean we cannot be united in most of the things that we believe and share in. But it is a difficult reality. Dr. William Barclay, you, you know, if you ever wanted to answer a question, you're not for sure if you know, and you, you're just curious what the Presbyterian writer, Dr. William Barclay, writes, he made three points about this passage. I'm going to give them to you. You don't have to write them down, just if you want to remember them. First thing he says, this passage of Scripture teaches us this thing, to do or not to do something one must not only think about its effect on the self, but its effects on others. Because what is safe for one may be unsafe for another. 
You must think about what your actions, how they influence other people. Secondly, he said, nothing ought to be judged solely from the point of view of knowledge. Everything is judged by the point of view of love. Thirdly, no one has the right to indulge in a pleasure or to demand a liberty which may be the ruination of another. And there's where the rub really comes. A young man went to school at seminary. He was looking forward to taking a class. He couldn't get in. He ended up in another class and another a book I was reading about it. He said he went in that class wondering how it would go. And on the first day, the professor said, I want you to write at the top of your paper this statement. Things which are always wrong for everybody. Now, on the, another place in your paper, I want you to write down things which are always right for all people. And then lastly, I want you to write a column that says, things which seem wrong to some, but not to all. And they begin to talk about the things they could list in which things were right for everybody. Lo and behold, even in that small class, they didn't have the same list. The things that were wrong, again, not the same list. The things that seemed wrong to some and not wrong to others was a long list. For instance, there are some denominations who do not believe that Cindy can stand behind this pulpit and preach. That's why we don't call them United Methodists. Because we believe that women have been called to preach. How you interpret the scriptures can go either way with that. I'm aware of that. In fact, you pick your side and I'll pick the other one and we'll have fun. (laughs) Then we can swap. But I do believe that the scriptures, rightly understood... And with full knowledge of the inspiration of scriptures, certainly make place for women to proclaim the scriptures. Otherwise, I would not be a United Methodist. It's a question I had to answer when I began to seek the path of ordination. Some churches believe that you have not been baptized unless you have been fully immersed. United Methodists believe that you've been baptized if you've been sprinkled, immersed, or poured, or stayed out in the rain a long time. Okay, not so much that. You have to have the right word, say the right way. You have to make the right profession of faith before the water is efficacious or effective in your baptism. But the amount of water is not what marks one as a Christian, but rather the content of the heart that says, I believe in Jesus Christ. The following through with water baptism, in my mind, is simply a matter of obedience because we're told to be baptized. We're saved by faith and faith alone. We Protestants believe. And that's important for us. But it's not always on the same level that everybody else believes it. Some people believe that any drink of alcohol is a sin. Some people do not. All people agree that drunkenness is sinful. Now, do most people who drink ever get drunk? It's my question for my young friends when I was first converted they would tell me, well, now, it can't be wrong for it to drink at all. I said, no. But if you drink something that you can't handle and you become drunk, then you might kill my daughter. And I think that's really wrong. You don't have that right. 
Now, how many people do you know who drink regularly and often who have never been drunk? And you can answer that question as you come to the altar. Don't call names, please. And maybe they've gotten old enough that's not a problem anymore. That happens with most of us, right? Is that not one of the reasons why we tell teenagers you shouldn't drink at all? Because you're not old enough, it's not legal. But most of all, because as a teenager, you have a tendency to make some wrong decisions. Not our group included, of course. We know you are all angelic. And your knowledge is beyond question. And your faith without peer. Nick has assured me of that. Whose knowledge is, well, let's go on. (laughs) I get more chances than you, Nick. That's the biggest difference. So as you think about this passage, you begin to contemplate what this might mean. You might wonder how long is your list on things that are wrong for everybody? How long is your list of things that are right always for all people? And which things seem wrong to me but not to some other believing Christian? And how do I feel about them and share life with them when we have different opinions? Now, this gets very touchy when you pick certain subjects. I picked on gambling because I think it's a known reality that the stock market is a gamble. And although preachers tell me over and over again, but you can't count that as the same thing as gambling. And I say, well, it has four legs. It has a tail and a mane. It looks like a horse. Most things that look like a horse and run like a horse or a horse, like a duck, you know, two feet, it waddles and it quacks. If it waddles and it quacks and looks like a duck, it probably is. If you don't think the stock market is gambling, go back and check your lineage all the way back into the late 1920s and see if the stock market is a sure thing. Or bet all your money on the stock markets for one month. You pick the month, and then at the end of the month, you have to cash out on that day. And tell me, was it a gamble or not? If you picked the wrong month, God bless you. Because all that you had would be gone. Now, that's not gambling. Not the same way it is to go and shoot pool in the pool hall. When I was growing up, one thing you didn't do is go to that pool hall. Pool halls were bad places. But I was on the edge of that. And the trouble was, when I finally got to go to town, all my friends were at the pool hall. So... I figured I needed to witness to him. (laughs) You know, I've never found more sin in a pool hall than I've found many other places. People are people, wherever they are, wherever they congregate. But this thing, this principle about everything has to be tested by love, even above knowledge, is a huge thing. Because knowledge tends to make us proud and make us think that we know more things than others. And so, therefore, they should listen to us and do as we do. But knowledge can also lead to a kind of pride that is sinful and causes people to stumble and fall. It can cause us to have to change my mind. The first church I went to pastor... Happened in a strange way. I told you the story. I was 27 years old. I finally began to read the Bible a little bit for a year. I've been reading in really conservative kind of groups. 
and I believed uh, a lot of what they said made sense to me. And one of the things they said is women shouldn't be in ministry, and they quoted Timothy. And so, you know, I kind of believed that. And then when I got called to ministry, dawned on me one day. I found out they voted on people who became ministers at annual conference. And everybody always got approved unanimously. That's just kind of the way it goes by the time they've gone through all the, uh, the ordination process. But you had to raise your hand and say you believed or didn't believe. And I realized that I didn't really think that women should be ordained. I even, in all my wisdom, my first year in the pastorate, where I started out with a congregation of 13, by the time the year it ended, we had 50. Man, I could see, I could see the kingdom coming in Callisburg, Texas. And I remember standing in front of a small group of them in Bible study and telling them how the system worked and how they could refuse to accept a woman as pastor. And here's how you do it without really doing it. Here's what you say. Here's what you don't say. And one day I kind of sat up and went, I'm going to have to stand up in front of the whole annual conference and say I don't believe in women in ordination when they presented to be ordained. And that's going to look really weird. But if I believe that, I have to do that. And then the next question came, maybe I'm really not a United Methodist. And then the next question came, you really don't know a whole lot about the scriptures. So I'm going to wait. Because I meet a lot of women in those days in the 80s that were coming out of divorce, were coming out of bad relationships, and that became their call to ministry, that and women's rights. I was pretty sure that was not what brought people into ministry. So I went to Asbury. First year there, I saw they had a class on women in ministry. I thought, where else to take you but Asbury, right? So I signed up to take that nighttime class. In the meantime, I began to meet women called out of churches around the country who looked you straight in the eye and said, God called me to preach, and they told their story. And I went, that sounds just like mine. They act just like I act. They believe like I believe. What is there that I don't know? And I studied and I read. And there's a level of scripture that a lot of people never get to, and I certainly hadn't at that point in my life where I learned to read in with the culture and about the culture and discern why things were said certain ways in the scripture. And I came back with a smile, and I could vote for any woman who was called to preach like I could for any man. Yes, I can take the scriptures and interpret them a certain way to take the opposite side. But I know what I believe in my heart, and I think I know what God wants from his people. And I happen to be in a, in a, in a church that agrees with that belief. So I had Cindy, along with Chiv and I, as a ministry partner, who has not been ministered to by Cindy already in the time she's been here, who has not seen the gift of pastor in her. You see, Scripture evolves as we evolve as a believing people. I was pretty crusty in the beginning, and I'm about done now. If you're wondering about that, I'll just let you know. Because I really was very legal about what people ought to believe and what people ought to do. I was one of those prideful, young, arrogant males who believed that I had a lot of answers. I believed I could prove them with a the book. I'm a lot older now. Not nearly as smart as I was then at 27. But I'm a whole lot more graceful. And I thank God for that because it changed me from who I was and transformed me more into the person I needed to be. So that I can hang out with people who believe entirely differently than I do or don't believe at all 
and be comfortable in sharing my faith in the proper way at the right time with words that are loving and caring and concerned and fit in with the people I'm around so that they can hear the call of God and not be confused by their past experiences in churches where they have felt judged or condemned or left out. I believe that it's important to the church of Jesus Christ and the culture we live today that we take this passage to heart, recognizing that there are all kinds of levels of knowledge and that there are well-meaning, believing Christians who don't believe all the things in the Scripture as we believe them. That does not mean they are not Christian. It means that the thing we're talking about is hard to pin down. And today we live in a culture that pushes us in a lot of ways. Don't get me wrong. There are still things that I believe are wrong for everybody and things that I believe are good for everybody. But there are a lot more things that I'm willing to live and let others live. And I found a church home where I can do that, where I can practice my faith without fear of being unjustly judged or condemned. And also a place that has an idea of the boundaries of love and grace that far exceed their boundaries of persecution and being right. So I ask you today as you come to the table to contemplate that and ask yourself the the simple question, how are you causing someone that knows you to stumble? Sometimes it's very unintentional in our lives. Many times it is. I'm going to call the pastors to come forward to to the stage now as we prepare to serve communion. Sometimes uh, it's things that are very evident to us and we know to be careful. And sometimes the difference between those two is a very thin line that's hard for us to discern. But the reality is that the love of God is always the guiding principle and light behind everything and the way that we should approach every person who's a human created in the image of God without condemnation as we seek to understand their point of view. Perhaps we can bring them to a little bit fuller knowledge. Perhaps we can't. Perhaps we'll have to agree to disagree on some topics which are not critical to being a follower of Christ. It's the way it is. We all are different. But when we are a people who are on fire with love and grace, forgiveness, and humble knowledge that can inform other people about how loving is their God, that it is a church that the things of the culture and the world cannot hold back because the world is yearning for such a place to worship and to be fed and to grow in safety and to expand their boundaries of the presence of God in their hearts and minds, even as they expand their service, reaching out to others. I commend that lifestyle to you. And I commend to your concentration this morning, your focus. What is it that we might be doing as a body as we begin this month in prayer, the prayer emphasis that we'll be praying about all month long is, what are we doing in ministry? How could it be improved? How could it be more friendly? How could it reach out to others better? Do we need to quit doing some things so we can do other things with our time and energy in order to reach the world for Jesus Christ? I hope you join me in prayer. We closed last month's prayer yesterday in the sanctuary with people coming throughout the day and some in the evening to contemplate and to pray about our world. And now we're moving on to us, to the body of Christ.
Christ in this church. As we pray, I ask you now to silently confess your sin to God that you might be ready to come to the table. It isn't a Methodist table that's open to anyone who wishes to come. It's not a table of, of, of the Methodist church, excuse me, or, but it is the table of our Lord. So it's open to everybody, even if you're not a believer, but you want to come and you want to seek the presence of God. We invite you to come and take these sacraments.